So, so the idea that greatness has to be appreciated in reference to something. So we first find it in greatness as it's manifest in our experience of the world. And then from there, we start to infer a sense of Hashem's greatness that's beyond our experience. Right? Okay. Remember I said there were three levels? Okay. So now we move on to the third level. And remember, the idea here is that the degree to which one has a sense of the earlier level is grants a greater sense of reality and legitimacy to the subsequent levels. Um, I'm going to use the following analogy. Um, it is not a perfect analogy, but it is a good analogy nonetheless. Um, people often who grow up not religious, um, and I, I specifically, am, uh, when I say they're not religious, I mean is they grow up, not just that they're not observant of Torah mitzvahs, but they grow up in a family, in a community, in a, in, in, in a society where the notion of reaching towards the divine, reaching towards God is not part of their consciousness. It's not part of how they were raised, part of how they're meant to live, okay? Um, and that person could at some point decide, show interest in becoming religious, which we discussed yesterday, often first comes from an awareness of Hashem um, and then, and only then an interest in practice, although it doesn't always have to work that way. So now... The question becomes, what would prompt a person whose frame of reference is secular to start to show a genuine interest in religion and God and divinity? What would, what would cause that to happen? And to make the argument a little, to make the idea a little bit clearer, let us assume the person is not in their becoming an adult phase of life. So let's assume this, let's, talk, let's try and imagine how this would work for someone in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s. Um, so we can like separate out this question of like trying to find your own identity and break away from your parents as being a mix of the issue. Like they've already, you know, they found their place in society and then afterwards that happens, right? So let's think of that kind of a person. Not that to delegitimize a person who goes through that process at an earlier age in life, it's just that's not going to be helpful for the point I want to bring out. So what would, you know, a successful, well-to-do person, or maybe not, whatever, but a person who's figured out the place, their life, in a kind of secular context which they were raised, and then, you know, in their 30s, their 40s, they start, you know, looking for Hashem, and then through that get determined. So it's like, what's going on psychologically? How does that work? Yeah. Maybe they're feeling like a lack. You're feeling like a lack. Okay. So I would say that, that that often is the case. They're feeling a lack. That lack can be prompted, broadly speaking, one of two ways. Something happens that really shakes things up. Okay. That's one way. But the other way, and the way that I want to focus on today, because I think this is going to be more appropriate to, as a model to understand what we're going to talk about here, is that they're actually successful. That... Um, they, they, that there's a sense of not, there, there, there's a sense of that's all there is. Like, I, you know, I, I've done it. Where, where it starts to sink in like, you know, it's, there's not, there isn't really anything more to achieve. There isn't anything more to live for than what they already have. Now, you could always go to another place on vacation, you could always make more money, right? You could always 
that more social status. But you kind of have a sense that having those more of those things quantitatively is not going to it's it's not going to do more for you than you already have, right? It's not going to change the quality really. And yet at the same time the person feels like there should be more. Right? Now that's a very specific and I want I want to separate that out from like the question of like you know, kind of youthful rebellion of trying to develop your own identity. They can be mixed together, but I want to just separate that one thing out from itself. Now, it could also happen the opposite. A person, a person is very successful, everything goes very well, and all comes crashing down, and that causes them to devalue, you know, that, that kind of secular mindset, and that makes them go looking. But that's not what I want to, I want to talk about by that first way. So what you have here is you have this one part of the person that is seeking and what they realize is that the way they've been seeking can never get them what they're really looking for. That's basically what, what, that, what that is. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, the, the trick here is, it's not that they've made all the money they could ever make. It's not that they've met everybody they've ever met. It's not that they've done every activity they could ever do. It's that on some level, they have a sense of those are just the variations of a theme. It doesn't matter how many different types of cuisine I eat. It's not going to touch me fundamentally differently than, than what I've already experienced. It doesn't matter, um, you know, what other, you know, what new career I start. It's going to end up being the same basic thing. Now, that requires a kind of a depth because you're seeing past um, superficial differences or sometimes what are differences that don't even seem so superficial to other people. Does that make sense? Okay. So... What happens if we have somebody who, because they have a godly soul, has a, a deep innate sense of Hashem on the one hand, and they've been trying to make sense of Hashem, have an awareness of Hashem through the ways we described yesterday, right? That first, I be, I'm trying to become, get to know Hashem, get to see Hashem, get to appreciate Hashem through how he's manifest in my experience of the world, then from there realize that the truth of his goodness, the truth of his greatness is beyond those limited forms. And I have to have a sense of that kind of beyondness, that sovev column as it's put. What happens when you start to realize that this way of approaching Hashem is never going to get you to what you're really looking for? In a kind of similar but different way to what we're describing. In other words, that there's a part of you that's seeking out Hashem. There's a part of you that's looking for Hashem. And you start to slowly dawn on you that framing Hashem in terms of the source of goodness is just, it's not it. It doesn't matter how profound, how, like that's just, that's not it. And this is a much deeper thing than like the person who goes from exactly being religious because that's just going from a life devoid of an awareness of Hashem to realizing there has to be something else in it. So they start looking for what's that something else. Hopefully they, they, they land on Hashem. Here, we're taking the same idea. It's kind of a person like maxes out. They realize that, yes, it's true. I haven't fully fathomed the transcendent greatness of Hashem. But even if I did, it's just more of the same. And that doesn't satisfy that, that, that there's this deeper yearning. And so in that contrast, the person starts to get a new sense that no amount of framing Hashem, of trying to make sense of Hashem can ever really capture what makes him real and significant and important. And in that sense, it, stops, it starts to feel like that everything that we did, spoke about in the last class, 
the Mamalikam experiencing Hashem through the world, the Sevaklam, how Hashem transcends the world, all that is, it's inconsequential in terms of who Hashem really is. But that only comes about, not as like a, a, a thing you, you prove to yourself or, 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 or argument for yourself. It arises almost naturally because of the, that, that, going back to that example of the, the person becoming religious, the inherent superficiality of the way you've been approaching your life versus this deep need, at some point it just becomes clear this will never get you for what you're looking for. So in a deeper sense, the, 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 the part of our soul which, which yearns for Hashem starts to get sense, it can never be satisfied by framing Hashem as the source of goodness, the source of beauty, the source of life, the source of meaning. Even, even in the most transcendent, abstracted sense, it's just, that's just not it. Now, that doesn't mean you now have a sense of what it is. You just have a sense that whatever, whatever, whatever is, is about Hashem that is pulling at me, that, that is, is, is so profoundly different and real that it renders that whole other way of thinking about Hashem superficial, irrelevant. And then you move to that third level. Okay? So what I want you to notice is you notice as, as we move through levels, like the ability to like articulate this in, like, in like clear concepts becomes harder and harder. Okay, and this is very important because, because ultimately the ability to formulate something into a concept and articulate it into words shows that it is very limited. Shows that it, that, that, that it, there's, that, that it's um, the product of making what I'm gonna say is convenient distinctions, distinctions that help you differentiate to navigate the world, which is not a bad thing. But I think we understand like to have a really a sense of how great Hashem is, like that, that's something you actually have to shed. So what's happening in this process is that the notion of defining or articulating becomes less and less important and there's this kind of sense of Him becomes more and more dominant. And that's, that's this notion of the greatness of Hashem. So again, let's summarize what we did yesterday and then tack on what we did today. Yesterday we spoke about, okay, greatness has to be measured. So the first thing is we measure Him's greatness by the world. And the idea is, I'm just gonna posit it, is that all of the good in the world is really him. So how, good, how great is he? He's as great as the world is. The second level is to realize that all of the good in the world that is a limited manifestation, and if something is taking on different forms, then those forms are not showing what it truly is. Kind of right, like if you, if you, if you I use the example of intelligence, or like if you have like you, you use Plato and you put it in a particular shape, it could take on another shape, and you start to realize that these different forms are belying the true grandeur and richness of Hashem's goodness, because because only a lim- it can only be only a limited sense can come through any particular form. But as you start getting a deeper sense of that, it starts to feel unsatisfying because it doesn't really satisfy the inner need and drive towards Hashem. And then your second sense is what truly Hashem is renders this whole process that I went through almost irrelevant. And so Hashem becomes, and I use this a fancy word, ineffable. And you can't articulate Him. You can't speak about what makes Him great. And that is in a certain sense His greatness. Okay? And at that point, it's extremely personal, extremely intimate. Now, I want to just add one thing to this. Have I said anything in today or yesterday's class which is an argument for Hashem's greatness? 
to try and move somebody from a place of th- not thinking Hashem is great to thinking that Hashem is great. Or, in contrast of what I've done, is try to describe the process by which a person gains a greater awareness. In other words, is the issue here conviction and agreement, or is it awareness and experience? Which one is I've described more? Awareness. Right. This is very important. Okay, and I want, I want us to like step out of a second from, from this specific section. The time that relates to this, there's a very important thing to understand. If I adopt the position, which I'm fine, I'm mean, free to do that, that a particular thing I am skeptical of, not in a cynical way, I'm just skeptical of, right? In other words, that the burden of proof is on that thing to convince me of its truth, convince me of its relevance. Then even once I have become convinced, Right? There's still a barrier between me and that thing, which is that it's the strength of the argument. And there's always implicitly the acknowledgement that should a stronger counter-argument come along, I'll have to revise. Right? This, is, this, is how a, this is how a person who is dealing with trying to come to things through rational conclusions operates, which is not a bad thing. But now let's, let's give an example. Okay? Um, let's say a person gets married. Okay? Um, there's a very big difference between before you got married and after you got married, hopefully. Okay. Before you got married, you met this person. Why do you agree to marry them? It seemed like a good idea, right? <laughs> right? We live in a society where like, no one is forcing you to marry somebody, right? So ultimately, it seemed like a good idea. Now, what does that mean it seemed like a good idea? It means implicitly that should you discover that it's not such a good idea, then what are you going to do? No, before the marriage. Not marry them. Not marry them, right? Now, that's, you know, as the time progresses, the burden for to change that goes higher and higher, but okay, right? What are you agreeing to when you get married? To be partners. So, what's the reason you're going to stay married? Because it seems like a good idea? No. No. Why are you going to stay married? You're agreeing that it was a good idea. No, what you're more actually agreeing to is like beside the point. Like, in other words, you are married. It's a matter of fact. Now, I realize that there's a concept of divorce and from the, we could talk in a second about how that would fit into this. But it's not like, okay, I'm getting married. And if it doesn't work out, if it turns out this was a bad decision, I always have the option of divorce, right? That is not the mindset a person stands on the chuppah with, right? In fact, if you knew that your husband was standing on the chuppah with a mindset, look, she seems like a great woman. But if it turns out I was mistaken, there's always divorce. If that's like part of his calculation at that point under the chuppah, you're not, you're not up for it, right? And presumably he wouldn't be up for it if he thought that was your calculator, right? So again, there is a reality of getting divorced, but whereas we're in the decision to get engaged and to get married, that really is the thing, right? So there's this interesting shift where it's like, why should I marry this person? Well, here are my reasons for marrying the person, and then you agree to do it. But what then, when you agree to do it, you're actually not you're actually like not relating to it that way anymore. It's like you are now like establishing a matter of fact about your life that you're then going to have to deal with and face the consequences of. Okay. And by the way, it, from that perspective, then how would we understand divorce? Divorce is simply the matter that you can't stay married. Now, what makes can't is an interesting question, but that would, if that would be the mindset, it's like, I can't stay married. I mean, it could be psychologically I can't stay married. It could be halakhically I can't stay married. Right? To, to use a, a kind of an extreme example, it would be like, you know, you could cut off your arm, right? But people aren't walking around saying, you know, 
like useful things. So I'll keep it around until good, you know, until I've been enjoying it. People are like, this is my arm. Like, you know. And it's only when like you can't keep your arm because it'll kill you that you, again, what that threshold should or is is a, is a separate question. But it's a, it's a different thing, right? You're not, right? A, it, it, and, 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 and that's like, it's a totally different mindset. In that sense, it's not like a, think of like a business partnership. A business partnership doesn't enter that state. A business partnership is always understood that as much as we're business partners, it's a good reason. And if it stops being financially worthwhile, then we're not business partners, right? But you don't, that's not the state of money you enter into a marriage, right? So that means that if I'm using my rational mind to convince me that something is a good idea, I never get to the point where I'm 100% on board. I've, every conclusion that I reach rationally like that is always tentative, which is not, again, a bad thing always, but that's not a good way to develop deep, intimate senses of connection, is it? So if my goal, and I'm emphasis, if my goal is to develop a, an awareness of Hashem, right? not to be convinced of a theological principle, that I would have to use my mind rather than as a convincing mechanism, but rather as something to help make something more clear and vivid to me. Right? In other words, that in using my rational mind to help make sense of something and become more sensitive to it and aware of it, but not, I'm not trying to convince myself. You see, this is an important difference here. Okay? Because... If you try to convince yourself and you can do that, what you'll end up with is dogma, which again, from a halach point of view, there's dogma in Judaism and you should be convinced of it and if rational argument helps you, then maybe that's a good thing to do. But that doesn't give you a sense of, of intimacy and closeness, which is not gonna help fulfill we're talking about developing this kind of emotional bond of ruling the nature of your heart. That makes sense? There was a, 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 um, a non-Jewish philosopher criticizing a non-Jewish priest who supposedly prayed for a very long time to be provided with a convincing proof of God's existence. And the non-Jewish philosopher said um, that that's ridiculous because prayer as a, as a psychological state is a state of embracing and engaging with God. and um, You don't... You don't embrace someone you love and then at the same time question whether they're really there. Like those are not psychologically compatible states. Right? It, 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 I mean, you could physically do it, but you can't emotionally be in it. Right? And so this notion that, that, that that's idea, I know that by the way from a Jewish book. But, um, that, that's I think it's just an important thing that even though I, I'm presenting things in kind of a rational way, we're using reason to provide clarity and coherence rather than to provide justification. Not again that you can't do that, but you end up with a different mental result. You end up with dogma and conviction rather than awareness and sensitivity. And that's like a choice a person has to make, like which, what, what, which of those two things they want to do, because it's, you can't really be working on both simultaneously. Wait, how do they manifest like, when it comes to analyzing? So let's use the example of a conversation, okay? Um, why do most people not like having conversations with, with a lawyer in a courtroom? It's an unpleasant experience. Why? They're trying to catch you. Right. In other words, the lawyer's position is that I do not take what you are saying the way you intended. So you have to prove to me that the way you intended is what you actually said. But that's not a normal way to communicate. The normal way to communicate is what's called generosity, is that I assume that you were trying to mean what you meant. 
And if therefore you misspoke, right, I tried to clarify, did you mean this or did you mean that? Because I genuinely believe that what you're intending to communicate is what I should try to understand, right? It's not an adversarial thing. Conversation is not meant to be adversarial. But when you approach something in a manner of having to justify, you're approaching it adversarially. So even when you can be convinced, you're still in an adversarial position, right? Now, again, that's very fine and it's very good for many things. In fact, the Talmudic discourse is very much like that. But it's not good if what I'm trying to create is a feeling, a, a, a sense of, 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 of awareness and closeness, which is what we're trying to talk about here. Okay? All right, now that we're done with this, we're going to go back to the word meditating because it says we're supposed to meditate in the mind on the greatness of God, greatness of the Ain Self. Remember that? Okay. Now, um, wording some, some notes about translation. Number one, I really do not care what word you use to translate anything. It doesn't really bother me. What does bother me is if a person doesn't have the right idea. Okay. So, what do you mean by meditation? Did finish number three? Yeah, I did finish number three. There's not a lot to talk about number three for an obvious reason. It's kind of the result of that tension between the sense that what you're looking for isn't being fulfilled by the way you're going about it and that you're just kind of left with it. It's beyond that. Right? There isn't, it's... Right, what? Beyond words. That's right. Okay. Um, what do you mean by meditation? If you were to read this, you say it says meditation. What, would you, what is meditation? Contemplate. Okay, well, this, I want you to describe what you mean by meditation. Now, I understand that it's something you do in your mind, right? But you can do a lot of things in your mind. Yeah. So what exactly are you talking about? What, when you see meditation, what do you think it, what do you think it means? Focusing to, on a specific point that you're trying to really comprehend. Focus on a specific point that you're really trying to comprehend. Okay, how would you, like, so, like, I take something, like I say, like, um, a slogan, and I focus very much on it. And I just like make sure to fill my mind. That's what you think it. That's what you think it means, or do you think it means yeah. to imagine what it looks like? I think it's a little bit of both. What? I think it's a little bit of both. Okay. Does anyone think meditation means something different? I don't know. I think it's meditation. Just like a question. Like, can meditation be done in other places other than the mind? No. It's a mental activity. So why is it like, why does it add the words in the mind? Um, he, he, he's going to point out at each step where each thing is taking place. Is it in the mind or in the heart? So that's a simple answer. Um, is that different, different states of these things are... are, are, are um, but I want to just focus on, on what we mean by meditation. Does, does anyone have any other things if they see meditation or they hear meditation, they use the word meditation, they mean anything else other than that? To think about something till it leads you to have an emotional experience. Okay. So what we're going to do is this is going to become an interactive class and we're going to do some mental exercises. Okay? Good? So there's some rules for these mental exercises is that unless you are otherwise instructed, all these mental exercises have to be done with your eyes closed and no talking. Okay? 
and preferably with staying as still as possible, but don't hyper-focus on that, okay? Okay? Okay. Now, I'm also, everything is gonna be timed, okay? So, this is an important part of this. Okay. All right, the first thing I'm going to ask you to do is to find an object in the room, look at an object in the room, any object in the room that you want, but select one object, not a person, an object, okay? And I want you to close your eyes and I want you to meditate on that object, starting now. Number one, did anybody's mind move on to anything else other than the object they were meant to be meditating on? Raise your hand. So you have some people whose mind didn't wander off, yes? Okay. Okay, question two. In your estimation, how long was that? 30 seconds, 40 seconds. Very good, it's 30 seconds. Okay. Now, those of you whose mind wandered off, what did you do when your mind wandered off? Okay, and then what? Then picture the thing again. Then picture the thing. I already okay. Okay. Did you say sh- your mind shoot? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's important. That's important. You said shoot. So you were meditating, whatever that was. Then you mind wandered off to something else. Then you had an emotional, judgmental reaction to that, and then you tried to go back. Did anybody skip the emotional, judgmental reaction part? I mean, I definitely, it wasn't like an emotional reaction. It was kind of just like, oh. Right, so there's a, so it's important. There has to be an awareness. So you're an awareness that you're no longer doing it, right? But there's not necessarily like a shoot. No. Okay. Okay, that's already important. Okay, so number one, let's just start here. When, again, I don't care about the word meditation in English. I I care what the alphabet is talking about. And I know what he's talking about because... It's described in great detail in other places, and there's a living tradition of how to do this stuff, but we're going to still a little bit. Number one, whatever he means here by meditation, or you can use another word, contemplation, reflection, whatever it is, I don't really care what you call it. If your mind wanders off, that means you are not really doing it. You are starting to do it. In other words, real, quote, meditation is at a point at which your mind no longer will wander off. Okay. However, to get to that point, when your mind wanders off, what do you have to train yourself to do? Bounce right back. Bounce right back without having any emotional reaction to the fact that your mind wandered off. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so that's already gives it narrows down something about what we mean by this kind of mental activity, right? Okay, number two. Question, or not number two, next question. Um, did anybody discover anything new about their object? What, what was the object? What did you discover now? I was focusing on the pen and then I was thinking about all the wonderful things that were written with that pen. 
words of Sarah that were written that time, that, that first one I looked at the time I didn't really think about. Okay. How many people, um, when they were meditating on their object, were just trying to kind of like keep the visual image of it in their mind very clearly? Okay, that's not what we're talking. That is not what the alphabet means, okay? Visual is... I was also thinking at the time I have no idea what we're supposed to be doing. Okay, that's fine. That's fine, okay? So, 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 so let, let, let's, let's narrow this down. It's not an activity of visualization or reproducing any kind of sensory experience. So it's not like trying to remember what something sounds like or something tastes like, right? That's a different use of your mind, right? It does involve a kind of conceptual awareness, right? So you said, I thought about the pen and then I immediately thought about the pen in terms of how it's been used, right? And the effect that's been left on the world, right? So we're thinking about something in more kind of a conceptual way, okay? Okay, so now would be closing my eyes and being aware of the sensations in my body count as what we're talking about here? Would that count as meditation? No. Now, are there people who describe that as a kind of meditation? Yes. Yeah, so you see why it's important to disambiguate what we mean? Yes. Okay. Um, by the way, that practice can be very useful. It helps dealing with anxiety and things like that. It's not a bad thing to do. It's just not this. Okay. Um, we're going to do another exercise. Ready? Okay, now... This time, what I would like you to do, I would like you to take, um, is everyone here familiar with um, a story in this week's Parsha, last week's Parsha, Parsha's Noyach, but what are the, you know, familiar with the story? Everyone has a story that, okay. What I would like you to do is, again, we're doing the same thing, closing your eyes, right? And um, what I would like you to do is I would like you to think through how you would tell this story, okay? How you would tell this story to, and I'm like, like very concrete, we'll make it, make it like a specific kind of a character, okay? A college sophomore who is very intelligent but has no Jewish background. And I want you to think of how you would explain that story to them. Ready? And start.
ました。Okay. First question. How long was that? Very long. A minute. 60 seconds. That was two minutes. Okay. Number two. How many people felt like it was taking a long time? Okay. How many people felt like they lost track of time and it felt like they were abruptly jerked out of it? Okay, so that's another thing, is that doing this kind of meditation is supposed to get to a state where you kind of lose track of time, and then if you stop, it's like all of a sudden, like, you know, you, you just, you're like, the reality got pulled out from under you, and like, you're back to like, well, what happened? Now, that obviously is not a black and white type of a thing, comes in degrees, right? Um, how many people were, were aware of the wording they were using? So one thing about this is that the beginning levels of this kind of meditation, you're very much aware of how the, you're using wording to capture things. As a person gets deeper, and not everyone gets to this place, they get to a point where their mind is directly engaging with the content and the wording almost falls away and by the wayside. But that gradually happens. You don't, you don't consciously stop paying attention to the wording. Okay? Um, How many people were, so, were, were aware of the whole story at once and had a hard time like, being, having their mind on one part at a time? Because right, when, when you're explaining a story, you have to like, explain what happened first, what happened second, right? So like when you were, was it, someone will volunteer, who, what story did you use? Someone volunteers, which story did you use? Parshas Noah. Parshas Noah. Okay. So when you were talking about the commandment to build the ark, was your mind totally just engaged with that part of the story? Or was part of your mind like also aware of like later it's going to be like the dove and later, right? Um, yes or no? I guess, I don't know. I mean, I knew that I had to connect it to something, but I wasn't like right away, you know, I don't feel like I was thinking of two things at once. Okay. Did anyone feel like that? Like you're trying to tell one part, but you're kind of aware of where you need to go next? Yeah. As you weren't really, right? So another part of this is that you're, you're actually like, like traveling through what you are contemplating or meditating on rather than standing above it. So if you're like standing above it and like seeing the whole story, you're not real. That's not really what we're talking about. It's like when you're telling this part, when you're explaining this part, you're totally there. And because it has a, 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 a real relationship with what comes next, it flow, you flow, your mind flows into the next thing. So Again, that's not, that's, not that's, not that's not a dichotomy. It's like you're either absolute one or absolute the other. But this meditation, this kind of meditation is moving in that direction. And so you're more in that. To the point that your mind almost seems to be going without you guiding it. Because just what you are, what you're engaged in explaining necessarily moves your mind to the next thing. The next thing. So you don't even have to remember what comes next. That would be like, you know, as you get more... Proficient in that, which obviously requires you have to really know what you are contemplating before you start doing that kind of meditation. I interrupt you about to ask something. Yeah. No, just all I'm taking from this is that I'm really bad at hmm? meditation. Well, maybe you're bad at this kind of meditation. There are other kinds of meditation, right? You might be good at it. At least I have a friend. Okay. Okay. So we're getting kind of a sense more about what the author Rebbe means when he says meditate. Okay, now, um, I personally don't like the word meditate simply because it has association with so many other kinds of mental practice. I prefer a word like contemplate or reflect. The original Hebrew word is, is misbeinen as a verb or hisbeinenos as a noun, which comes from the word bina to understand. 
And so what I want to do now is now that we've had a little bit of a taste of what kind of mental state we're talking about, the mental activity we're, 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 we're referring to, I want to now like kind of conceptualize a little bit of what's going on there. Okay. So to do this, briefly, we have to discuss that um, Hasidus breaks our rational mind into three faculties. I'm sure everyone's familiar with this idea. There's Chachma, Bina, and Das. You've heard this before. Right? Forms the acronym of Chabad. Right, okay. Right. That's where the Chabad thing comes from. Okay. So, to do this, we're going to play a game. Rather than me t- tell you about Chachma, Bina, and Das in the abstract, we're going to play a game. Everyone needs a partner. The partner is the person sitting next to you. And we have an even number of students. So this works out perfectly. Excellent. Every partner needs, between every partner, you need, you, need, you need to be able to write something out that your partner can't see before we start. And then you're going to need one person to do the writing between the two of you for the actual game. Okay? So you need to be able to write something down that your partner doesn't see before we start. And then one of you is going to be the writer between the two of you. Okay? Okay, now, this is their winner and a loser. Are we meant to write something? Yeah, you're all going to, I'm going to tell you the rules, okay? Are, are we both supposed to write something that the other can't see? Yes, you're both supposed to write something the other can't see, and then once we start, one of you will be the writer between the two of you. I have to tell you what to write. You don't have to write yet. <laughs> don't just write random stuff. It make your life very difficult. You don't know the rules of the game yet. What you should need, what you should write down is a noun. A noun, a pers- a word that its meaning is a person, place, thing, or concept. Right. So freedom is a noun. Dog is a noun. Right. Okay. Running is a noun. Because running can also be a gerund, which is the concept of the activity. Right. I enjoy running. In that sentence, running is being used as a. That's right. Okay. But I recommend simpler nouns will make your life easier. Okay. Everyone write down a noun and your partner may not know the noun that you have picked. Okay. Now, the way this works is when I say go, you will show your noun to your partner. When I say go, I said write down if they can't see. Oh, okay. When I say go, you will show the noun to your partner. And then between the two of you, you will try to come up with at least 20 things that your nouns have in common. One of you has to be writing them down so we have a list. If you reach 20, don't stop because someone else might be going past 20 and you want to win, right? Oh, yeah. It's competitive. Oh, so whoever has the most? And whoever has the most wins. Wins um, I will tell Mrs. Gestetner that she should give you a candy from her candy jar. Uh, we get those for free anyway. Yes, but this one will be deserved. So you'll like to feel proud about it, okay? Okay. Okay. Now, this is timed. I will not tell you how much time you have. That's annoying. I know. What? I will tell you that it is more than 15 seconds. 16 seconds. Okay, you have to come with 20 things in common. Could both of us write at the same time? You can have two people writing, it's just, that's fine, but like, you, between the two of you, you have to come up with, you have to at least one person writing so you have a record of the list. And, ready, set, go. Okay. 
get to 20. Yes. Okay. You got to 20? Yeah. Okay, we'll come back to you. Okay, now number one, I would like I would like the group that displayed a complete lack of chachma to stand up. If you know which group that is, please stand up. You have displayed a complete lack of chachma. Why? What did you say? You volunteered to lose. <laughs> what does it mean you volunteered to lose? <laughs> what? We give up trying. Why are you giving up trying? Because ours are really hard. So you did not believe that you could do it. Exactly. That's right. You were not open to the possibility of success, right? Okay. Uh, I appreciate it. Okay. In other words, in other words, that a very concrete understanding of chachma is the openness of your mind that it can actually get somewhere in whatever you're doing. Okay? okay. So do you need Chachma, going back to that kind of meditation contemplation, would you need Chachma to do that kind of contemplation meditation? Yes. Definitely, right? Because if you're gonna kind of, if you're gonna be closed off, closed right, it's just not gonna work. That's kind of obvious. Now, um, how many gr- groups had emotional reactions to either the difficulty, ease, or cleverness of a particular thing. But did you like, wow, that's good, or oh, this is hard, or that's silly, right? Okay, yeah. Okay. Now, what were you not doing every time you had an emotional reaction to the to the task? You weren't doing the task. So those emotional reactions, we're going to call them a lack of das. Das being the fact that you are focused on 
doing a task. On, on, on something, in this case, focus on this mental activity, right? So if you had perfect das, at least in a quantitative sense, that means you would have just like, your mind would have been thing, 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 right? Until the time would run off. By the way, how, how long did that task take? How much time did it take? Three minutes. A minute. Two minutes. Which means you needed to come up with one every? Every minute. Every seconds. What, to do 20? Every six seconds. How long does it take to come up with how long does it take to come up with something that these two things have in common? A lot more than that. More than six seconds? I would argue less than six seconds. What? Yeah. The first two took like 40 seconds. Okay. What you'll also notice is that you probably go and get into a groove and then fall out of a groove. Also reflecting of the DAS. That you're more that it's an emotion. It's not an emotional reaction would be a lack of DAS because it takes you away because the emotions what, distract you from the. That's right. That's right. The DAS is being connected. Your mind is connected and engaged with what, with whatever. In this case, with this mental task. Okay, who put on their list that they're both nouns? Oh. Good for you. Good for you. Kind of. Who put on their list that they both have words in English? By the way, have you did you consider did you consider how many how many um uh what do you call it um letters there are or um how many um syllables there are in the words because sometimes yeah. Now, is that a totally different way of thinking about it? Yeah. Okay, right? Because you could think about like the object in reality. You could think about the word that represents the object. Right? There are different ways of, make, of, of thinking about it, right? And those different ways of thinking about it to come up with these different answers, that would be the use of your bina. Okay? So your chachma is what? That even though you do not know the 20 things they have in common, you know that there are 20 things in common and you know that you can come up with them in a very short period of time. And so you're going, like, there's no reason to like, have this kind of, well, this is beyond me, I can't do this. Das would be what? The fact that your mind is engaged, which both has a quantitative element, like how often you get distracted by like an emotional reaction or something else going on, and a qualitative thing, like as you notice that like the more engaged your mind is, the faster these things come. And then you have the actual like taking these two words and breaking them down in different ways to find commonalities, even though they're two different things. And that would be your, you know, okay? Now, is this like a, is this like a clear philosophical definition of Chachma Bin and Das? No. No. But is this, why I'm doing this is to give you kind of an experiential sense of what we're talking about. Now, let's go back to that meditation, his Bainanus contemplation thing. of the three things, what is the primary thing that we're trying to be exercising? Das. The das. Now, I'm going to ask you, is that because you know that's the right answer or because reflecting on what we did with those exercises and now that you have some sense of das, is it, is it clear to you that's the main point? Right? When you're trying to, th- go back to that story, when you're trying to tell over the story to that you know, sophomore girl from college, right? The main thing that makes that successful or not successful is how engaged your mind is with each aspect of the story and what it really is and how you communicate, right? And of course, in order for that to function, you need to be able to have like the openness and the optimism and the willingness to do that, right? The Chachma. And you also need to have, 
right? Some understanding of the story and the ability to figure out how to explain it, right? But the actual main thing that that really depends on is the das power. That makes sense? Okay. Yeah, but I don't understand why emotions wouldn't help. Like, I don't get why it distracts you from the task if at some point it actually pushes you because I want you I want you to think about it I want you to think about it not I want you to think about the actual emotion and the actual task when you are wow that was amazing and like you're laughing together with your partner you are not doing the task right okay now you might be right that between the two possibilities of having positive emotional experiences that might remotivate me versus having no emotional experiences and being completely disillusioned, disinterested, that emotions are better. But that wasn't my contrast. My contrast was between being engaged in the task and being and be having an emotion to your degree of success or failure. And when you're having the emotion, you are not caught up with it. You're not doing the task. It's that contrast I want you to highlight. Not, so it's, not a, it's not saying that emotions are a negative thing per se. It's saying when I'm re- emotionally reacting, I am not proactively engaging my mind in that task. There's a tension there. Okay. So now, I said that this kind of contemplation or meditation, he was called his bainus from the word bina, which is interesting because you would think that it should be called like das or some kind of like das-related word if the main thing is the das component. So the basic idea is like this, okay? The main thing here is the use of the das. However, your DAS can't function really on its own. Remember when I asked you to do that thing about explaining the story, I asked you to, did you know the story? And I presented you with like a hypothetical person to explain the story to, and that forced you to have details and specifics, and only then could your mind be really engaged. The rule of it is like this, is that your mind cannot have DAS unless it has specific things it can grab hold of. Think about this physically. If I want to grab the hold of this table, I can't grab it in the middle. It just doesn't work. Why? My hands are small and need some kind of edge. But if I grab it at an edge, and if that edge actually has a lip on it, it makes it easier to grab and I get a hold of it, right? So the use of the analytical mind to break something down and define and compare and contrast and analyze provides the kind of handholds on whatever it is so that my mind can be totally engaged. So the, 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 the bina, the analytical part, is really a means to being able to be fully mentally engaged, which is the opposite of what you did. What you did was you had to be engaged in order to come up with all these answers. And, and you'll, what you'll notice is that often you'll use your mind in the following way. You don't understand something. And it's important for you to understand and you believe that it could make sense. And so what do you do? You try and think about it very deeply to understand it, right? So in that case, what you're lacking in is understanding that, right? Breaking it apart, making sense of it, Bina. And in order for you to be able to do that process, your mind needs to be engaged. So your Das is serving your and then what you'll notice is the minute it's all clear, the minute it all makes sense, it's very hard to keep your mind focused on more. We call that learning. Familiar with this thing, right? Like when you're learning something, you're open about it, you're curious about it, you really want to know it, right? That's the Hoffman. Um, you have some vague sense of it. 
and you're trying to make sense of it. And the more details you have, the more you engage. But what's motivating your mental engagement is the promise that eventually it'll all fit together. And when it fits together, now you don't feel, don't feel the need to be mentally engaged. Well, what, this kind of meditation is reversing that. It's saying, use the fact that this is something that has a lot of details in it and you're interested in as a handle so that you can be mentally engaged. So then what's the point of being mentally engaged then? Let's be mentally engaged in order to come to a greater understanding that makes sense. But if I already, I already understand it, what's the point of being mentally engaged? Come to a deeper understanding? No. No. That could be, but then, that, then that's not really this. To elicit a different reaction from the... Good, good, but we're skipping a step. So for this, I have to introduce one other concept. Okay. Um, have you ever encountered this in, in a Hasidist class or something where someone speaks about the idea that it's going from above to below and below to above? You ever heard these expressions? Mm-hmm. Right, of course. And what this means is because God is in the sky and we're down here, so, you know, there's going above, there's going from below. That's silly, right? Okay. So what does it mean to go from above or to go from below? So there was a very famous Hasid and his name was Reuven Dunin. That's right. And he said that if it's hard, which direction are you going? And if you're on a bicycle and it's easy, then which direction are you going? So when I lift up my hat, I'm using my physical strength. Am I using my strength from below to above or from above to below? Is this hard to me to lift my hat? So then that says a above. When I go to the gym, in a theoretical sense, um, and I lift weights, what am I doing? I'm using my strength beyond what is easy, beyond what is comfortable, right? I'm digging at, right? And so that is called going from from below to above. Just like, right, physically, something that's high will naturally move down. Something that's down has to be forced up. So when you're using an ability and it naturally flows, that's coming, going, going from when you have to push yourself to use that ability, that's going from. So for God to reach a person, he's infinite, to reach a person is pretty straightforward. For a finite person to reach God, takes a lot of work. Does this make sense? Okay, every faculty, every ability you have can therefore be used in two ways. So we're gonna talk about using your DAS as like an activity in and of itself. But we're going to talk about using it from above to below. Have you ever um, had a very important thing coming up in your life that you kept obsessing over? That ever happened to you? Yeah? Okay. Now, when you obsess over it, are, are there a lot of details and aspects that come pop in and out of your mind? Right? Yeah? Okay. Are you trying, are you obsessing over it as a rational um, ec- exercise of trying to like get a better understanding of how to approach it? Or is it just, it's not like that. It's usually obsessing over it. Why are you obsessing over it? Why is your, in other words, why is your mind so engaged with it? You're emotionally invested in it. Okay, so, so what we're going to have to do is we have to be very, very careful. We're going to take out the word emotion because this is an area where Hasidus has a more sophisticated terminology than I think most people do psychologically. I'm going to use a different word right now, and then we're going to come back, not today's class, we're not going to have time, we'll come back next week and talk about exactly the line between this and emotion. 
it is very real and important to you. And because it is real and important to you, therefore your mind is naturally engaged with it. Kind of like if the bike is up at the top of the hill, it's very natural for the bike to go down. So what do we see? What's the nat- what is the above to below? What's kind of the natural way the DAS works is that you move from something being real and important to you to being mentally engaged with it. Right? In an ongoing and deep way. Right? Now, go back to like physical strength. If I, what happens if I lift something that's heavier than what I can comfortably lift? What, you know, assuming I don't do it in a way that breaks me, what will happen? I'll get stronger, right? So what happens if I reverse it? What if I force myself to mentally engage very consistently and very deeply about something? What will then happen? It will start to feel very... And... That's right. But no, that's going to be working from below to above. That's going to be very hard. In other words, the way these faculties work is they can be kind of, they, 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 they can, they're not like machines. They can work in two directions. So what Hisbainanos is, is using this kind of rational thinking, this explaining, this um, describing, this trying to make it clear and more coherent. Not because you're trying to make it clear and more coherent because you don't understand it, but as a way to have your mind have something to hold on to so that you can force it to engage beyond your natural comfort zone. What happens if you do that consistently and deeply? Over time, it changes how that thing registers in your mind in a very deep way. It starts to seem more real and it starts to seem more important, which then leads us to the ability to have an emotional relationship with that thing, which I'm gonna elaborate, I think, more in the next class. So what is this meditation? This meditation is trying to develop a sense of the reality and significance of Hashem. How do I do that? By taking things that I already know about Hashem and thinking about them. But the key thing about the thinking is not the regurgitating of the information. The key thing about the thinking is how consistently and deeply I'm engaged with it. And in order for me to do that, it has to be something that my mind can really, so to speak, sink its teeth into. So it has to be sufficiently detailed, sufficiently fleshed out. But I'm not doing it for the sake of gaining more knowledge. And I'm not doing it because I already have the sense of how real and important it is. I'm doing it to get that sense of importance, to get that sense of reality. And now here's the important thing. If that's what I'm doing, then my awareness should be entirely on the greatness of Hashem and in no way on myself. And I don't mean this about like being selfish or not being selfish. I just mean this as a practical matter. Remember what we said about that exercise when you were like doing, trying to figure out all of the things they have in common? If you're aware of how good of a job you're doing, then what are you not doing? So if I am now thinking of how successful I am or not, or how, you know, I, if, in those, if, I, if my own self is the object of my, 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 my mind, then that's displacing the greatness of Hashem, which means I'm not totally focused, which means that sense of that 
just like that, that sense of Shem being real and important will, won't happen as well. It's like if you exercise, um, but you don't really do the exercise. Right? You familiar with this? Anyone here exercise? Right, so there's ways you can cheat in an exercise, okay? Um, like, so for instance, let's say a person's doing these chin-ups, right? And so they get up to here and then they just kind of like go like that, right? The exercise is to exercise this. If you cheat by moving your chin up like that, right? Or like people will like, you know, move their background as they're doing uh, push-ups. So it looks like they're actually doing more of a push-up than they really are, right? There's, the form of the exercise is very important. The form of this isbainus, this meditation, is that my mind is totally, totally engaged to the maximum degree I can, both in terms of consistency and quality, in the, whatever it is I'm trying to contemplate. And the result is that to the degree I do that, it will start to seem more real and important to me. In this case, the greatness of Hashem. Conditions for that are I have to actually have something to hold on to and I have to be in a kind of open state of mind to do that. Okay, so you need the Chacham and the Bina. But if I like crowd out the object of my Hezbollah, i.e., you know, the greatness of Hashem and include something about me and my standing and whether I'm good at this, then it's like, you know, moving the wrong muscles to circumvent the exercise. So it kind of looks like you're doing the exercise, but not really. And then you shouldn't be surprised that after 20 years of doing that, it hasn't achieved anything. Is this an easy activity? Is it something that every person can basically do? Yes. yes. And if you do it and you work on it, you will get better at it. Okay? That's what he means by meditate on the greatness of the Ain Sof. Is this the same thing as learning Chassidus? No. no. Because in learning, what are you doing? Where it's the, what's the mental activity of learning? The mental activity of learning is gaining a greater understanding, right? Conception of the thing. And I'm using my ability to engage to get there, which is why the minute you feel you fully understand it, the this sense that I need to have my mind engaged in it wears away. Okay? Has anyone ever been to a museum and they have seen somebody staring at a painting and they come back like an hour later and they're still there staring at the painting? Okay, you know what they're doing? Spinous. They're doing Hispanicus. But they're doing Hispanicus on what? Mm-hmm. On a painting. You can do Hispanicus on a painting. So what are they doing? They're focusing on that painting and they're trying to see it for everything that it is and every detail and holistically and in its individual things. You don't right? think there's any emotional... No, I didn't say it doesn't... So that, that, that's why I said we're going to do that in the next class of how the emotion starts to enjoy because there is an element of emotion. It's not so simple. Okay? Um, could you do his abidingness with music? Right? But what you, what you start... Right? But one of the things that kind of happens is the deeper you go into his abidingness, the less aware you are that you're doing it. <laughs> Because the object of your awareness is what you are contemplating, what you're trying, to, what you're focusing on, and at some point, you know, it's like going back to the kind of exercise. If you start exercising, um, it's hard in the beginning. I don't mean like like each like day. It's hard. I mean like you just like six, but like at a certain point, like you get into a rhythm of it. And so even though you still have to keep putting in effort, but it almost like carries itself also at the same time. And there's a way that his brain has that. As a person gets into a certain level of threshold, right? It's, they're still having to push themselves, but there's also the way in which 
it's carrying them all at the same time. And that's where I said, remember I said, your mind doesn't wander off. That's when the mind not wandering off really starts to kick in because like it becomes almost like an engine. An engine works is that you, you make, you know, on the one hand, each time the, like a, a gasoline engine, each time that the spark plug, you know, ignites the gasoline, it provides energy to move the engine, but there's also working off of some of the re residual energy from the last time as well. Um, that's why in the old cars, like you had to manually start the car because the engine had enough to keep itself going, but not to really start it. Now we have electric starters. And so it's, it's, it's something, it's a skill and some people are naturally good at it. Some people have a harder time and some people have to work on it. And, um, you know, and is there, are there hard and fast rules for exactly how to do this? No, because everyone's mind works slightly differently, right? But there are broad themes. Make sense? Okay, now, the one last thing that I'm going to say on this, if you add an expectation to the process, will that help or hurt it? Hurt, hurt right? That make, does that make intuitive sense? Okay, so if I'm doing this with the expectation that it will lead me to deep feelings of love and awe for Hashem, is that going to make my husbandness more effective or less effective? So this is interesting. You're doing this in order to produce an emotional response, but you have to do it without the expectation of a... Does that make intuitive sense to everybody or should I elaborate on that? Because this is an important aspect of this. Okay, so that's what he needs, okay? It's really, really... Now, I want to be say one other thing and we'll end on this. I know it's a little bit early, but I, I don't want to do the emotion things. I want to start that without stopping in the middle of it. So I don't want to like squeeze it in at the end. The Altareb in chapter 18 discusses the fact that not everybody can do this. What? Right, so it depends how you mean, what you mean by everyone. Okay. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Jewish men have to put on tefillin every day. True or false? False. Both. It's true as long as I understand every day in the not most literal sense of the term every day. That there are days where there are exceptions. Or if I say Jews have to keep 613 mitzvahs. Now if I understand that I mean Jews collectively have 613, but if I think every single Jew has to keep all 613, that's actually not true because there's mutually exclusive mitzvahs. There's mitzvahs only apply to men, mitzvahs only apply to women, mitzvahs only apply to a Kohen, mitzvahs only apply to a non-Kohen. Like you can't, you can't do all 613. So if I say everyone, there is a way in kind of like everyone in kind of like a kind of normal sense, but not in an absolute sense, okay? Um, in chapter 17, he's also gonna talk about why that could be. There's going, to be, there's going to be, in chapter 17, he's going to talk about one reason. And then in chapter 18, he's going to talk about another reason. And then he's going to give a whole different approach for how to go about being a Bainani. That doesn't involve this. So I want to be very clear. This is, this is kind of the altar of his standard approach to being a Bainani. But it is not the only approach. Okay? Um... Because when we say everybody can do this, I mean, it does require effort and time and, 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 and ability and, and growing in sensitivity. And, and what the author was going to conclude is that we want something that's going to be for everybody in a more absolute sense as well. That's going to be based on the fact that this, that the Tanya's comment explaining the verse 
um, that Judaism is close to your heart, it says kariv ma'oid. Ma'oid means very much. So the altar understands that means in an absolute sense, not in a, like a regular sense. So what we've described is something everybody can do in a general sense. But like, is it true that every single person can always do this and always be successful in this? No. So there, there is going to be another approach, but we're going to be focusing on this approach. Okay? The next class, what we want to do is we're going to start talking about how this process leads to emotions. And we want to like explore just a little bit before we go back into the text, how it on the one hand leads to emotion and then also the tension it has with emotion. Because it's, it's not a simple story and having some sense of that will help us um, navigate it. And then that will set us up for what we can do the rest of the chapter. Good? Okay, yeah. tomorrow, just one sec, tomorrow's questions and answers, so please prepare your questions. Um, I can't really prepare the answers, but... Yes. Can I ask, it's like a slightly tangential question, but you're just saying about like the 613 mitzvahs, there's no one person who could do all. But like, I've heard a lot the concept that like the 365 negative mitzvahs correspond to like the 365 or something. Mm-hmm. And like that's how you elevate that part of the body. If you can't do all, 